a joy to be together today. Amen. I'm excited. We're doing something. Uh, we we kind of have stuck to these rhythms since, since we've existed, but we're doing a little short series here in January before we jump back into Matthew at the end of this month. I think it'll be a good, uh, a good formative time for us. And the reason we're doing this, so we're doing this kind of this specific series around this idea of the identity of the church. What is Christ's church? What is our role within it? And, and the reason we're doing this is uh, Emmanuel Fellowship Church is a little more than a year old. That's, that's kind of cool, right, by the way? A little more than a year old. We've had our one-year birthday in October. Like, praise the Lord. That's awesome. And I know for some of you guys, it doesn't feel that way because you're like, you're part of one of those founding churches and you're like, I've been with half the people in this room for like 10 years. It doesn't feel like we, we hit a big milestone in October, but we did. And, and I think it's important for us in, in this point, this junction in the life of our church, because really at this point, we're kind of past the stage where it's okay to take two founding church cultures, ideas, visions, and histories and just kind of do this, which is kind of what you have to do, right, at, at the very beginning. But our church is old enough that we've, we've really got to start asking uh, and, and living into, man, what is, what is Emmanuel Fellowship Church as this local church here in Aliceville, Missouri? What is, what is God calling us to as a family, as brothers and sisters? What is, how do we live out and work out the mission of God in our own lives, in our families, in our church, in our community? And my hope is that the next three weeks will kind of help us set some of the stage for that as a church family. So, so what we're going to do today, tomorrow, and the Sunday after that, so three Sundays, a short little time together, we're going to walk through some practical questions about the identity and the function and our participation in the life of the church. So today we'll ask this broader question, what is the church? And, and, and that'll lead us to kind of ask some, set a theological basis and ask some questions around the, the concept of uh, what theologians call the universal church as well as the local church. And then next week, we'll move into this idea about what is, what is the role, the purpose of the church? What does the church do in the world, both the universal church and local expressions? We'll ask this question about individual participation. What does it look like for us as individual followers of Christ to give ourselves fully to the work of God in the context of a local church? And by the way, we have a good practice field for that because Emmanuel Fellowship is a local church. Like you're, you're, you're part of one. And so uh, we'll bring some of that to bear in terms of what can that look like for you, for me, for us as a family in our church life. But today... Today we're asking this question, this fundamental question, what is the church? Now, it may not seem like it at first glance, especially if you have been following Christ and involving yourself in the life of the church for a long time, but this is actually a really important question. And I say that because I know, I know in a room like this that some of you hear this, you heard me kind of set up this series, and your first thought was, that'll be really good for some of those young new people in our church who need to learn this stuff. But I do get to zone out for the next three Sundays, and I want to encourage you not to do that. I want to challenge you to try and bring some fresh eyes and presence to what God might be telling you and challenging you and reminding you of in the coming weeks. First uh, Timothy 3.15 says this of the church of Jesus. The church of Jesus is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. I love that phrase. Those are architectural terms. 
I'm sure most of us have an immediate idea of what a pillar is, but do you know what a buttress is? Because I am not ashamed to admit I did have to Google that to figure that out. I had to, to, to need 10 seconds to giggle because it did have the word butt in it. And then after giggling, then I had to Google, from giggle to Google to figure out what a buttress was. And uh, man, this is, this is really starting off well. We're doing good today in this sermon, I can tell. Uh, <laughs> a buttress is a beam or a protrusion that leans into the side of a structure to reinforce it, right? Like, you, especially if you see old stone buildings, old stone churches, there'll be these kind of like diagonal things that push into the side. In the context of ancient architecture and ancient stone architecture, pil pillars and buttresses are different, but they serve a really similar purpose for the, for the purpose of the building they're attached to, which is they hold it up and they hold it together, right? So the church of Jesus, according to Paul, speaking to Timothy, a pillar and buttress of the truth holds up together the truth of God in a world that is in desperate need of the truth of God, in a world that is sick to death with the realities of the curse, with the effects of sin, the church of Jesus is a pillar and buttress of the truth of the glory of God. It's an important question. Guys, the church of Jesus is the plan A of God for salvation in this world. And plans B through Z don't exist. It, this is how God works and moves in the world within which we live. It's an important question. Church of Jesus holds up the truth of the gospel. So, understanding the identity of the church, and by the way, understanding your place as a follower of Jesus within that identity, actually very important. Even if you've been following Christ for decades, it's very important to come back to this idea, to be grounded in the truth of who God has made you, Mrs. Church. We're gonna be looking at 1 Peter 2 to address that question today. If you wanna go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, by the way, uh, if, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles under some of the chairs. You can look around and grab one. Uh, we would love for you to do that. By the way, if you're here and you don't own a physical copy of God's word, uh, I'd invite you to snag one of those and just take them home. We uh, really believe in the importance of access to God's word here at Emmanuel. And even a step further, uh, you can just talk to one of the pastors and we will get you one nicer than the ones under the chairs if you don't have a Bible. First Peter 2, to give you a preview of where we're headed today, uh, many theologians would tell me that my entire premise for today is invalid because the question is invalid. Biblically speaking, you shouldn't really ask what is the church, but rather the question, who is the church? And that is because the answer to the question is as simple as it often is elusive. Beloved, the church is Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you caught this, we have three times the Jesus in that definition, right? Like, and then there's, an important, there's importance to that. But, but I'm going to say that probably 25 times in the next 30 minutes. Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. It's a simple but elusive answer. And catch that first part. It's the people, Jesus' people. As much as we use the word church in our context, in our culture, we most often use it to refer to a specific building or a specific address or even a specific nonprofit organization. And that's fine, right? That's, that's, that's how that word kind of works out in English, right? But the word church, specifically the way the Bible uses it, 
uses it, refers to a group of people with a common work. Now, you may still be asking yourself a little bit, right? Like, why is it important to clarify this question? Some of this stuff seems basic. It seems obvious, especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time. You've been dedicated to the life of local churches for a long time. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you guys, and this is where we're gonna land with this today. If you are in Christ, you're in Christ, if you're a recipient of his gospel work, then church is who you are. It's an integral part of your identity. In Christ, you are the church. It's you, the people, Jesus' people. It's tremendously important work that we share with Christ in. There's beautiful, amazing freedom to be found in the life and family of Christ. You need to be grounded in exactly what the church is so that you can live the life and the freedom that God himself has bought for you with the brothers and sisters he has brought you to. It's an important question. So, 1 Peter. Let me give a little bit of context, then we'll read this text. It's probably a little bit familiar to many of us. So 1 Peter is an epistle written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, we only have a couple writings from Peter in the New Testament, but 1 Peter is one of them. As a quick reminder, uh, Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was a leader amongst the 12 apostles. Peter, by the way, is not his actual name. It's a kind of nickname that Jesus gave him that translates roughly to Rocky, which I think is great. Uh, Peter was the first bold public leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the one who stood up and preached at Pentecost. Uh, His ministry eventually expanded beyond Jerusalem, and he actually ended up co-leading, co-pastoring the church in Rome alongside the apostle Paul later in life. This is where uh, Peter would eventually meet his martyrdom under the emperor Nero. Um, it, It is from Rome later in life that Peter wrote these two short epistles, first and Second Peter. And essentially what was going on is the churches across what they called in that day Asia Minor, what we call Turkey, the churches across Turkey that Paul, where Paul had helped plant amongst his first and second missionary journeys, they were experiencing a lot of persecution and suffering. There was a lot of brutality amongst um, local Christian congregations at that point. And so Peter writes this letter, this first epistle, specifically to encourage those believers in their suffering. He writes this letter to be meant as a circular, like a, to be circulated amongst the churches around Asia Minor, what we call Turkey, to encourage them to hold fast to the gospel in the midst of their suffering. So if you go and you read 1 Peter in one sitting, it's a pretty short book, um, he opens it up by telling you basically exactly that. Look, I get it. This is all of 1 Peter 1. I get it. Life is hard. You are suffering. You are being treated terribly. But over and over and over in that first chapter, he encourages the church, stick with it. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to Christ because Jesus is worth your suffering. This is the, the setup for the entire letter of 1 Peter, that, that what Christ gives you, the work accomplished for you by Christ, the, the gospel truth is worth the price you are currently paying. So stay true to Christ, stand firm in the gospel, endure your suffering. And then our text picks up at the beginning of chapter two, after Peter has, has picked through this idea several times. So let me, let me read the entirety of our text for us, and then we'll, 
work our way back through it. So starting in the first verse of chapter two of the first letter of Peter, we read this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, as this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Verse 9, but you, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we ask really humbly, Lord, that you would just speak to us through this text. As we take a few minutes, God, to consider something that, I mean, maybe really just seems kind of basic to us in our life together as brothers and sisters in our life of pursuing you, God. I pray that you would give us humble, open eyes and hearts, God, that we would be malleable, that we would hear from you, that we'd be open to correction, to encouragement, to challenge from you today, Lord. I pray that each and every one of us, God, as we as we sit in this space, as we process this, and as we leave today, that we would, we would hear from you what our hearts need, that we would be challenged again afresh to take the next steps of faith and obedience to you, Lord. God, we love you. We trust you for this work. So we pray boldly in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let, 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 me, let, let me reread that first section to kind of get us moving through this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, all slander, like newborn infants. Desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Therefore, rid yourselves. It's, this is why we had to put the context around it, right? Because this is a transitional statement. I, my pastor growing up had this cheesy thing he said that I think is actually really important. He said, when you're reading the Bible, you see a therefore, you have to stop and back up and see what it's there for. Uh, because it's this transitional statement, right? Like he's, he's building off of what he's been saying in this first section of, I get it. Life is hard. You're being persecuted. You're suffering. There's so much, like such a high price these churches are paying to follow Christ. But Peter is saying, it is worth it. It's worth it. Stay true to Christ. Stay true to the gospel. You will not regret it. Therefore, since Christ is worth it, since the gospel is this good, because it's worth it, then you should grow in holiness. You should kill the sin in your life. And you should love the word of God. And I love, I love the way he, he, this image he uses immediately, right? He says, like newborn infants longing for milk, you should love the word of God. I don't know how many of you in recent history have raised a newborn infant. I'm just gonna tell you guys, their whole thing is milk. Like that's their thing. 
Like they're really into it. It's pretty much how they let the world know who they are is I'm into milk and I sleep and poop and that's pretty much it, right? Like, so he's saying that kind of dedication, like this passion for the word of God. And there's a beautiful thing about it so that you can grow into your salvation. Not, not, not saying that, right, like, if you don't know the word of God, you're not fully saved. That's not what he's saying. But he's using this metaphor. Babies love milk. God designed them that way because that's how they grow. That's how they get strong. That's their nutrition. Moves them from being infants to being adults that can, you know, walk and hold their own heads up and important things like that. He's saying the word of God does that for you. It strengthens you. It grows you. Like, like the baby is passionate for milk. You should be passionate for the word of God. You want to endure suffering because the gospel's worth it? Jump into his word. Dig into his word. Jesus is so good that once you have him, you want more of him. You want more of him. Like the baby longs for more milk. That's how good the gospel of Jesus is. And I, and, and I read that text. That's not necessarily a part of where we're going today, but, but it is an important piece of understanding this larger bit of what, what Peter's saying. He's about to use a really specific metaphor for the identity of the church, but, but this idea grounds it. He's actually about to use a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery to kind of build a metaphor for the church. So the word of God is informing what Peter is saying right now, right? Like he, the word of God is helping him formulate what he's about to teach them about their identity as Christ's church. And then that's, that's how it works, right? This is the words that God preserved for us. If we want to grow in our faith, if we want to walk forward in obedience, if we want to grow in holiness, it's going to be because we're grounded in this thing. So then Peter moves into this series of images and metaphors that he draws almost exclusively from the Old Testament. This is where we're going to kind of plant our flag for the rest of our time this morning. Peter, Peter essentially says, he uses this image, he says, the church, and as you, as you approach Christ, as you're growing into your salvation, you approach Christ, he is a living stone, a living cornerstone, and you yourselves are living stones being built into a living building. Now that's a weird image, but it's important. Well, what Peter's getting at here is he's saying the church of Jesus is the temple of the living God. It's the temple of God. Now, this is connected, all of the images Peter's going to use in this text are connected to the Old Testament worship and, and the, the Jewish nation's connection to God through temple worship. He's going to use really specific Jewish, like Israel language to talk about this. But he starts with this image of Christ is the living cornerstone. You are the living stones. God is building up a building. This is actually really similar to another metaphor Paul uses in Ephesians 2 to talk about the church. But he just says God is building this building. You're a part of it. Peter takes it a step further and says, God isn't just building a building out of you. He's building a temple. A temple. He essentially says, hey, remember the Old Testament temple? Remember Solomon's temple where the priests were and all that stuff? That's you now. God is building you. Christ is the cornerstone. You're the stones built off of it. Now, if you don't uh, know kind of this, this is, an, and again, another ancient like, stone architecture kind of thing, but one of the ways they would build in this day, it was really important when building these massive stone foundations to have as perfect a cornerstone as possible. And the reason was because they would use the cornerstone as the standard for the rest of the foundation. The cornerstone was the first stone laid in a foundation of a massive stone building. And it had to be as perfectly square as it could possibly be because the rest of the stones would be carved and fit to the cornerstone. It would bring stones in rough cut and on site 
They would shave them down, carve them to match up to the cornerstone. As long as the cornerstone was perfectly square, the rest of the foundation would be perfectly square. But if the cornerstone was out, if it wasn't rightly aligned, the rest of the foundation and thus the rest of the building wouldn't be aligned. So, so, so Peter says, Christ is the cornerstone. He's the first one laid down, the living cornerstone. And by the way, this was an actual image used by the prophets to refer to the Messiah. He gives you a couple quotations here to connect you back to that idea. He is the cornerstone. The church is built on him, but it doesn't stop with Christ. You, church, are the stones built upon that cornerstone. That means Christ has drawn you in, brought you into his family, and on site, right there with the cornerstone, you will be shaped and carved and fitted to the cornerstone to be built up, to build this living temple. It's a sanctification you experience, right? You're brought in, you're, you're formed by God to the measure of the standard of Christ. It's the beauty of the power of the gospel at work in our lives. Now, I want to stick with this image. This image is actually, I think, important for us as we understand this. Because Peter doesn't just stop with this image of the church, and the church is this is beautiful, like it's this living temple. Christ is the cornerstone, you're the living stones. He then goes and he adds all these other images. He stacks them on top of each other, starting in verse nine. You're a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises, right? He's grabbing hold of all these, all these old, all this Old Testament language used to describe God's special and unique relationship with Israel. And he's using it as a metaphor for understanding the, the church and its relationship with Christ today. Now, this is actually really important. He's not saying the church is Israel, right? He's saying that if you look at Israel, it gives, it's, it's, it's the shadow of the substance, right? It gives this beautiful metaphor picture for what the church is. You, you don't want to overly connect that because it will create some confusion. What you, what you want to look at is essentially exactly what Peter hands us. This language is beneficial for helping us understand this unique thing that God has built called his church. And he's using this, this Israel, this Old Testament language to help us get there. You're a temple, you're priests, you're chosen, you're set apart. And by the way, this is kind of what I used, this text is the main text I used to kind of build up our definition that we're going to use for the church today. The church is Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to pick through that and talk through how Peter points to some of those ideas in his text. But before we do that, I do want to mention this part because we're going to come back and land here. I love how this text ends so that you may proclaim the praises. Why? This is who the church is. This is why the church is, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a beautiful proclamation, the power of the gospel in the life of the church. Amen. We're going to come back to that. But let's, let's take a few minutes and let's camp out on these images of the church. Christ is the cornerstone, a living cornerstone. You are living stones built up into the temple. You're the royal priesthood, the chosen race, all these images. Let's camp on these and see how they help us clarify and understand this definition of the church I've handed us. The church of Jesus is simply this. Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. Let's start with people. Jesus' people. The church is a people, not a place or location. This is a small but important point that I've already mentioned, but just to, to hit it again, 
We use the word church to talk about a physical building like the one that we're in. Emmanuel Fellowship Church, right? Like that's a useful way we use the term. But the reality is, this may be a building where the church gathers, right? But this building is not a church. You, beloved, are the church here at Emmanuel Fellowship, right here and right now. All people in all places and in all times who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation are his church. Let's say that phrase again. All people in all places and in all times who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation are his church. This is what theologians call the universal church. If you are in Christ, you are a member of the universal church. And that leads us to another important point about the peopleness of Christ's church. It isn't just people. I use the phrase Jesus people. It's called people. Peter even uses this called Israel language. We're the chosen race, a a holy nation. This means that not just anyone who wants to and not just anyone who shows up on a Sunday is a part of the church. Church is made up of Jesus people. That is, people who have submitted their lives to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Now, guys, this is somewhat distasteful in our current cultural climate, but it's important to state this. The church of Jesus is exclusive. We're part of an exclusive club. No, no, no. That's not what I mean. But it is exclusive. It's, it's inclusive in, in that anyone who wants to submit to Jesus for salvation is joyfully invited to, right? Like we, we would hope that any and all, as many as possible, would come to Christ for salvation. But it's, ex, it's exclusive in the truth that by biblical definition, there are folk who are in and there are folk who are out. If you reject Jesus Christ as the perfect God, man, who died and rose to forgive your sins, then you are not a Christian. You're not a part of his church. Some folk, by the way, may even claim to be a part of the church, but if they don't hold to the true gospel of Jesus as revealed in his word, they aren't. They aren't. That's heavy. That's something our, 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 in a lot of ways, beautifully inclusive culture finds distasteful. But the scripture warns about that. (laughs) There are people who will claim to follow Christ, but their lives, their doctrine, their practice do not bear that out. In fact, some of the harshest warnings the New Testament gives to the church, to us, is to be careful to look out for false teachers, for wolves in sheep's clothing, those who claim the name of Christ, but whose doctrine and lives do not submit to his truth. It's a big deal. Church is exclusive. It's not just people. It's not just the people who show up and say, yeah, this is my deal. It's Jesus people. It's people whose life, whose doctrine, whose belief, whose heart is submitted to Christ. It's not just people. It's a Jesus person. And by the way, I think there's an interesting distinction here as well. It's not just the Jesus person. It's Jesus people. It's a plural The actual word that we say church in English, the Greek word we're translating, literally means gathering, right? The church of Jesus is the gathered people of Jesus. 
It's a small distinction, but it's important. The entire concept of Jesus' church necessitates God's people being gathered together. I will often hear folk disparage the gathering of the church under the pretense of things like, I can commune with God just as well in nature by myself on a hike as I can with the gathered church. I can pray just as deeply and intimately as God by myself as I can somewhere else. In fact, I'm better at it when I'm somewhere quiet and beautiful and there's not children running around. Of course you can connect with God on your own. Of course you can. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. Because of Jesus, you do not need an intermediary. Christ has flung open the door and torn the curtain and said, because of me and my atoning work, you can commune directly with your creator. That's amazing. You can come directly to the Lord with your real heart. But you need to hear this. If you're doing that by yourself, you're not at church. Now, I know some of us, by the way, have health concerns, have stuff going on. We're stuck at home. That's why we live stream. If that's you, like we love you. We miss you. Don't hear me being mean to you because you're stuck at home. I get it. I get it. It's why we do this. It's why we seek to stay connected. But beloved, don't, don't be fooled. Don't be tricked by the enemy into running off by yourself and isolating in your faith. Church of Jesus is the gathered people of Jesus. You need your brothers and sisters. You need each other. Go watch a nature documentary. Which, which are the zebras and gazelles that get eaten? It's the ones that run off on their own. It's the ones who hang out on the fringe. You need your brothers and sisters. We help each other. We protect each other. We draw each other back to the truth of the gospel. The identity and experience of the church of Jesus is a communal one. It's a gathered people. Which brings me to the second aspect of this definition. Jesus' people gathered with Jesus. The, the church isn't just the people. The presence of the Spirit of God is necessary for it to be church. Christ himself is the head of the church. That means that if Jesus isn't there, you might be standing in the same room as other Christians, but you're not experiencing church, right? Peter again uses this very specific Israel language describing the church. We're a people for his own possession. The church belongs to Jesus, He's with them. They're connected to him. The whole image is that we're a temple made of living stones. What did you do with the temple, right? The temple is the place where the spirit of God dwelled. God's not there. It's not a temple. It's just a bunch of rocks. Now, you may be thinking at this moment of Jesus' own words in Matthew 18, right? Where the two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. And that's comforting. That's beautiful. That's true. Those are the words of Christ to you, Right? You don't need a special building or a special ceremony for the church of Jesus to convene. Just Jesus, people, and Jesus, right? That's wonderful. But there's also a flip side to that, which is a warning. It means we need to be aware of behaviors, beliefs, heart postures that disinvite Jesus from the party where Jesus' people are gathered in his name. That part's important. He's sovereign. He's omnipresent. He's over all things, but he's also a gentleman. He's not going to preside over something unholy or something from which he's not invited. Beloved, there are surefire ways to disinvite the Spirit of God from your gathering. The Spirit of God will not abide unholiness, even if his children are gathered around it. 
heresy, idolatry, unrepentant sin, unforgiveness, gossip, purposeful division. You need to hear this, beloved. When those are the focus of your gathering with brothers and sisters, you can be sure Christ is not presiding over that gathering as the head of the church. You can be sure. The flip side to that, by the way, is to, my dad just responded to a group text to me right now in the middle of me preaching. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> the flip side to this warning is the invitation that we get to consider. That we might purposefully gather around things to which we know our Lord is passionate about. Well, what does it look like to proactively gather around spaces, ideas, thoughts that we know Jesus is passionate about? Just things like mission, service, seeking the lost, love, etc. This, this, by the way, brings us perfectly to kind of our last aspect of our definition. Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. Gospel, gospel. We don't just gather. We don't just gather with Jesus. We gather around the gospel of Jesus. Just being in the same room as other Christians not sinning doesn't count. <laughs> you have to take it a step beyond this idea. Go back to Peter's language. The church is a living temple made out of living stones of Jesus' people. A beautiful image, but also a practical one. What was the, te- See, the temple was this building where the presence of God existed. But what was the temple for? It was for worshiping God. And according to Peter... We're not just the temple, we're also the priests, a royal priesthood. Well, what do priests do in the temple? They organize and administrate the worship of God so that Israel might live in communion with him. This gets us back to Jesus' words in Matthew 18. The church gathers in Jesus' name. Jesus' people gather around the gospel of Jesus. There is purpose and intentionality in our gathering. This connects us back again to the idea of the universal church. See, this this necessity of intentionally gathering around the gospel requires more than just the universal church. See, all Christians in all places for all times are all part of the universal church. But you, beloved, as an individual believer, are not everywhere and every when. You don't speak every language. You have to gather around the gospel with specific believers in a specific context. This is what theologians simply call the local church. This, by the way, is what Emmanuel is. We're a local church, an outpost, an embassy of the church universal, of the gospel of Jesus, of the reality that heaven is coming. This doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't or shouldn't gather with other Christians at times. Most of us have done this, right? It doesn't matter, be it vacation, a family occasion, a mission trip. It happens every so often that we get to gather with other groups of believers. And generally speaking, this is encouraging in all sorts of ways, right? If you've been on a mission trip and got to worship with a church that sings and preaches in another language, if you've been visiting family or going to a wedding or something, and you get to be amongst other brothers and sisters and gather with them and experience other contexts, generally speaking, it's beautiful, it's encouraging, it's a a wonderful experience, but it is to be the exception rather than the rule. 
Generally, your identity as part of the church of Jesus will and should be experienced through your commitment to a local church. You will find, beloved, if you give yourself over to this work, the gathering around the gospel often simply takes a lot longer than you think it does. It can take months. It can take years. It can take decades of deep and honest and committed relationship to really challenge and stir up the depths of your and your brothers' and sisters' hearts to the real riches of the mercies of God. Right? Like, we've been there before. You know the first time you hang out with a small group or a church gathering or whatever, and like they're all like already like they're already like in the pocket. They're confessing, they're they're walking in real transparency, and you step in that circle and someone's just like, Yeah, I, I engaged my heart idol this week and it looked like this, and I prayed, and you're like, Holy cow, that person is spilling their guts right now. I do not know them. This is very weird, right? It's it takes a minute to get to that space of safety, love, of bravery. We're willing to reveal the depths of our heart, the depths of our sin, to put our junk out there and, 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 and to grow in boldness enough to actually speak the power of the gospel over those things, the other people in the room. Sometimes someone like, gets that moment of courage and they spill their guts and you go, I'm not saying anything right now. <laughs> you just go, Thank, thanks for sharing. That's, that's a lot. I'll, I'll pray for you. That's a perfect response, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. But, but, man, as you grow in intimacy, as you continue to share, as you share life together, as you grow in holiness, as you continue to long for the word of God like a newborn longs for milk and that person spills their guts, you do find yourself, you will find yourself growing to a place where you go, thank you so much for sharing that. Let me remind you of the gospel. Let me not just remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the gospel contextualized to the exact thing you just said. Let me share some of my own heart in ways I've struggled with the same kind of idolatry. Guys, that takes a long stinking time. And if you've experienced that before, you know that. It takes, takes time to grow in that kind of maturity, that kind of safety. That's why we need the local church. We need commitment to the local church. This is why we commit to join local congregations. It's why local churches, ours included, gather regularly. It takes time to do what the New Testament, like what theologians call the one another's of the New Testament, the ways we love and serve and sanctify each other. Now, beyond this, it's important to note, we don't kind of formalize this idea of the gathering of the local church the way many high church traditions do. If you, if you grew up or came from a high church tradition, think like Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Episcopalian or things like that, even, even a lot of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they, they, they put a lot more specificity, a lot more definition around what does and doesn't constitute a gathering of the church. We don't really do that in our tradition. We don't require the presence of an ordained priest or, or a blessed service of communion to call a gathering church, but it's still, it's still really important to zone in on what is and isn't the gathering of the church. Because you can hang out with other Christians without going to church. Lord willing, a whole bunch of you are going to hang out in about 40 minutes. You're going to leave here and you're going to go to lunch, right? Does your table at Chili's constitute church? That's an important question, right? Because is there even a Chili's in West County? 
I, don't, I doubt it. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, like when, you, when you gather together with other brothers and sisters, you church, because the church isn't the building. You can do it anywhere, right? But there's, there's this intention, there's this purpose around it. Are the Jesus people gathered with Jesus around his gospel? If you're just sitting there like talking shop about how the blues are currently doing while you eat your chips, like that's good. You should do that. Hang out. It's fun. It's awesome. But church looks like something. Going to church, Jesus people gathered with Jesus, we're in the gospel of Jesus. It looks like something specific. And so I want to give you, this is not, we, we don't like define this out black and white, but I want to give you a couple just quick little thoughts. It happens often. Church, the local church, according to scripture, gathers regularly. You know, we, we, we probably use like a weekly rhythm or even a little more than that. You'll see the ordinance is practiced. The word of God will be the centerpiece. It will be proclaimed. If the word of God is not being proclaimed, it's not church. You'll see worship happen corporately. That means things from singing together to praying together to confessing together, telling Jesus who he is and how awesome he is, confession happens, unity is built, you grow in intimacy. Those are the, the markers we kind of look for of like as the church gathered. And so to kind of land this thing out, I'll say it for like the 45th time. What is the church? Hopefully at this point you're like, You've, I've got this one written down, I've got it. Good. Jesus people gathered with Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Why does that phrase matter so much to devote an entire Sunday gathering to it? Because of what Peter said in the first chapter. Because of what we already know. Because Jesus is that good. Because the gospel of Jesus is that wonderful. Let me draw us back to land where our text landed today. He says all these things, your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why is that our identity? Why does that matter? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, Jesus called you out of darkness into his wondrous light. You once were not a people. Once you were out there on your own, stuck in your sins, stuck in your death, but now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy. Look at the world we live in, beloved. That's a harsh way to say it, but that's a great way to summarize the brokenness of the world within which we live. Once you had received no mercy. That's what the world out there has to offer. <laughs> but now, in Christ, you have received mercy. You've been called out of darkness into the light. You've been drawn into this beautiful family of God. You have received mercy. Beloved, the church of Jesus is a family of freedom. Church is the place where this amazing gospel of Jesus that we proclaim all the time, this is where it gets practically worked out in your actual life. The actual details of your life, not what you do with a couple hours of your Sunday morning, but how you live your life in your relationships, your friendships, your job, your education, like how you actually walk in real freedom and joy in this life that you have. We work it out. We, we, we work through that stuff together here in the church. Like that's, that's what we get to do together. Beloved, in Christ, you are the church. It's who you are. This family of freedom is your identity. It's your privilege. You get to live. You get to live. It's a part of Jesus' church. 
You get to drink deep in that amazing gospel freedom. Don't mishear me, by the way. It's really stinking hard. It's really stinking hard. Peter spends a whole chapter affirming the truth of how hard it is. And just because our church doesn't live under the same kind of persecution Asian Minor did in the first century does not mean that you get a pass on Christianity being hard. It's hard. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in this room will treat you really poorly. You will get wounds that are deep. You will be sorely tempted to run away, to chase after something easier, maybe somewhere where you can hide in the back of the room and not be known and not have to give. Or maybe just to stink and run away and find your comforts elsewhere in this world. But beloved, Jesus is worth it. His gospel is worth it. And that means his church is worth it. You were made for Jesus' church. And hear this, beloved. We desperately need you. I'll end with this, band, if you want to come back up. One of the images that is used for the church in the New Testament that Paul uses is a body with many pieces, many parts. I don't know if any of you have ever had a part of your body removed <laughs> because of medical necessity. It's not pleasant. It changes you. You lose something. Beloved, we need you. The church of Jesus is your identity. It's your privilege. He's called you into it, and we need you. Jesus bought your freedom on the cross, and until he comes back, church family is where you get to live out that freedom. So, we're just going to do this. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go straight into a time of response, straight into taking communion together. I want to encourage you, join me in this prayer, join me in this song. I want to encourage you just to ask your own heart with you in Christ this question. Are you actually living into your identity as part of the church of Jesus? Beloved in Christ, you are one of those rocks that makes up that temple. You are one of those priests offering worship. You are part of that chosen chosen Jesus people. You living into that? Experiencing that? I want to just, again, I'm going to pray for us and then we're just going to sing, but I want to to invite you to take a minute before you leave today and just ask Christ that question. See what he says to you. And then we'll respond together through communion. Sound good? Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that we are not on our own in this world. We are not on our own in this journey of faith, but you have bought for us not just a salvation, but a new family. Together in you, Lord, it is such a privilege. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your freedom. Jesus, bind our hearts together. Draw us together as brothers and sisters in the whole of your church, church universal, everywhere and everywhere, everyone who calls upon you, Lord, draw and bind our hearts together. And God, for each and every one of us, bind our hearts to a local context. Push us to go all in with brothers and sisters that we might, that we might dredge the depths of your mercies together. We want to be all in for your kingdom, Lord. Help us to do it. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.